the RipperCast, your podcast on the Whitechapel murders. This is episode 16, Anything But Your Prayers, The Murder of Elizabeth Stride. I'm Jonathan Mangus, coming to you from Topeka, Kansas in the USA. Joining me today is Allie Ryder in Virginia. Robert McLaughlin is in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And Mike Covell is in Hull in the UK. And today's topic is going to be the murder of Elizabeth Stride. She was discovered on September 30th, 1888, in Dutfield's Yard in Burner Street in the East End of London. And Robert McLaughlin is going to give us a little bit of background on Liz Stride. Take it away, Robert. Uh, Elizabeth Stride was born Elizabeth Gustav's daughter in uh, a farm on Torslanda, Sweden, uh, which is near Gothenburg. Um... And this was November 27th, 1843. In 1860, as a, as a young girl of about 16, uh, she moved to Gothenburg as a domestic servant. Uh, she remained in, in that employ for a couple of years, and sometime before 1865, she becomes a prostitute, because by March of 1865, she's registered with the Gothenburg police as a prostitute. Um, in April of 1865, she gives birth to a stillborn girl, and as far as we know, that's the only child she had, so she remained childless for the rest of her life. Uh, in 1865-1866, twice, she was uh, treated for uh, venereal disease and cured. And it was around this time that she leaves Gothenburg and arrives in London. In three years later, in 1869, she marries a carpenter named John Thomas Stride, who was 22 years older than she was. Uh, things seemed to be uh, all right for them. Their relationship seemed okay. Uh, they ran a coffee shop in Poplar for about five years. Uh, all seemed well, until sometime in the late uh, 70s or early 1880s, uh, their marriage dissolves. And in uh, 1884, uh, John Thomas Stride uh, dies of uh, heart failure. Uh, a year later, uh, Stride hooked up with Michael Kidney in 1885, and uh, she remained with him on and off, because they had a tempestuous relationship until her death. Now, during her time in uh, London, uh, she was closely associated with the Swedish church off the Ratcliffe Highway. And uh, the clerk uh, there, Sven Olsen, uh, testified that he'd known Stride for 17 years at her inquest, and that oftentimes she applied for alms from the church, and that as late as uh, September 20th, she'd applied for alms from the church. Uh, as we move forward, uh, uh, in 1887, Stride accused uh, Michael Kidney of assaulting her, but she failed to appear, to, in, to appear in court, so the charges were dropped. Uh, throughout 1887-1888, uh, Stride was arrested uh, at least eight times for public drunkenness. And in July of 1888, uh, Michael Kidney spent three days in jail for drunken disorderly. Uh, Stride had left uh, Michael Kidney multiple times, but she always returned to him. Uh, as we move forward uh, closer to the time of her death, the last time that that Kidney claims to have seen Stride was September 25th. Uh, he said he left her and, and uh, that she was sober. He didn't know if she had any money. 
And uh, she taken a room at uh, 32 uh, Flower and Dean Street, lodging house there. Uh, the following day is uh, sort of an interesting event. Uh, Dr. Thomas Bernardo was noted for his boys' homes and his compassionate works amongst the poor. Uh, he visited number 32 Flower and Dean Street, and he met Elizabeth Stride, whom he would later identify at the mortuary. Um, on the day uh, of her death, uh, September 29th, uh, that afternoon, Elizabeth Stride uh, was cleaning a couple of lodging house rooms in Flower and Dean Street uh, for the deputy there, Mrs. Tanner, uh, who gave her sixpence for the work. Later, at about 6.30, uh, Stride and Mrs. Tanner go to the Queen's Head Public House in Commercial Street uh, for a drink. Uh, they return to the lodging house at 7 o'clock. Uh, Stride gives Catherine Lamb a piece of green velvet to hold for her. And she leaves the lodging house, and she still has her sixpence with her. She didn't spend that. Uh, at 11 p.m. that night, uh, two laborers named Gardner and Best saw a woman they described as Stride with a short man in a billycock hat outside the bricklayer's arms, kissing and hugging and carrying on. And they asked the man to come in and drink with them, but they, he refused. Uh, one of them said, that's leather apron getting around you. Uh, they told Stride and... She and the man just, they went off in the direction of uh, Commercial Road and Burner Street. At 11.45, roughly, uh, William Marshall, uh, he's a resident of Burner Street, number 64, uh, was standing outside, and he saw a woman who he later identified as Stride, uh, with a man about five feet six inches in height, wearing a sailor's hat. And the man said to her, you would say anything but your prayers, as they kissed and cuddled. Um, sometime around this, uh, between 11 and 12, Matthew Packer, who ran a fruit stand on the corner of Burner Street, uh, claimed to have sold grapes to a man uh, and a woman. His testimony, the time, the circumstances, they're all disputed, and uh, we'll discuss that a little bit later. Uh, Around um, about midnight, uh, William Marshall, he goes back inside and uh, uh, between 12 and 1 o'clock, there are various people coming and going from the International Workingmen's Educational Club, uh, which was inside of Dutfield's yard where the body of uh, Elizabeth Stride was later discovered at, at 1 a.m. Now, Several people come and go, and we don't really have any reliable evidence that they saw anything happening in the street, anything untoward, um, as they go in and out of Burner Street. Uh, the policeman on the beat that night, whose beat was to go down Burner Street, was uh, PC William Smith. It took him through Burner Street about every half an hour, and at about 12.30, 12.35, he saw a man uh, with a woman he described as stride opposite of Dutfield's yard. Uh, he described the man as 5 feet 7 inches in height, 28 years old. He wore deerstalker hat. And he carried a parcel wrapped in newspaper that was about 18 inches long and 6 to 8 inches wide. He said they were talking quietly and appeared quite sober. Um, Mrs. Fanny Mortimer, she lived in Burner Street, and she said she was outside part of the time between 12 and 1. Uh, there's problems with her testimony because she doesn't see some of the people coming and going from the worker... Uh, the International Workers Educational Club. Uh, she says a man uh, 
walk through Burner Street carrying a black shiny bag. And this is probably, you know, the first sighting we have of the, the you know, endless black bag stories. And it just turned out to be a, a man who had empty cigarette cases, a man by the name of Leon Goldstein. Uh, 12.45, uh, somewhere around that time, maybe 12.40, uh, Morris Eagle goes out into the yard and he walks up near the wall. Uh, he didn't trip over anybody. There was no body there. Stride was not there at that time. Uh, at about 12.45 p.m., uh, James Brown, no, not the godfather of soul, but a dock laborer from Faircloth Street, uh, he passed the junction of Faircloth Street and Burner Street, and he claimed to see Stride with a man who was about 5 feet 7 inches in height, average build, near the corner of of the board school. Um, he didn't notice much more about them except that uh, the woman said to the man, not tonight, some other night. Now, at the same time that uh, Brown allegedly sees Stride with the man, uh, the most discussed witness to his murder claimed he walked down Burner Street. Uh, it was about 12.45. Again, one of them has to be wrong on the time because they don't see each other. But uh, Israel Schwartz, a Hungarian Jewish actor, uh, who was going home to Helen, Ellen Street, pardon me, uh, he saw a man throw stride to the ground. She screamed three times, but not that loudly. Uh, the man was short, uh, about five foot five, had broad shoulders, he was about 30 years old, he had a peaked cap and a mustache. He shouted Lipsky, an epithet uh, that, uh, that was a racial slur that stemmed from an 1887 murder just a, a block over of Miriam Angel by a Jewish man named Israel Lipsky the, the year before. Lips, Lipsky was hanged for his crime. So at the time, uh, Lipsky was shouted uh, to Israel Schwartz as he walks down the street. Uh, a tall man, about 5'11", with a fair complexion, holding a pipe, uh, steps out of the doorway, you know, sort of like Harry Lyme in, in, uh, uh, in the movie. So... Uh, uh, Schwartz uh, left the scene quickly. He was heading south. He said the man with the pipe followed him as far as the railway arches. He didn't know if the pipe man was chasing him or running away as well, or if uh, he and uh, the broad-shouldered assailant knew each other. Uh, a few minutes later, uh, just before 1, 1 a.m., uh, Louis Diemschutz, who was the steward of the International Working Men's Educational Club, he arrived at Duffield's yard at a, uh, with his pony and trap. Uh, the gates were open. He comes into the gates, and uh, the pony shies a bit to the left. Uh, he stops. Uh, he pokes down with his whip. He attempts to light a match, and he assumes there's a body there. And at first, he's worried that it could be his wife. Uh, he doesn't know if the person is drunk or, or hurt or what. And he goes back inside, gets a few people, and uh, then he returns. And... Uh, he finds the dead woman, Elizabeth Stride, and, you know, that's that's when they all hell breaks loose. They go and uh, fetch a policeman, P.C. Lamb. Uh, the doctor is called for, Dr. Blackwell. He comes back at 116, and he pronounces her dead. And uh, that basically takes us up to the time where her body was found in Deathfield's yard. What were her injuries, Robert? Uh, she had only one uh, major injury, and uh, her throat was deeply slashed. Uh, slashed. The left side of her neck was uh, 
uh, cut uh, clean through right down to the vessels. Her windpipe was severed, and uh, the tissues on the right side of her neck were less damaged. Uh, she was holding a packet of cashews in her, her left hand still. Uh, they're breath sweeteners uh, at the time. Uh, she was found on her left-hand side uh, in the uh, walkway, uh, leaning towards the wall. Now, she's the only one not to have been found on her back, the only alleged ripper victim not to be found on her back. And uh, she, uh, she, her throat was still bleeding, and it didn't look like she had been asphyxiated, asphyxiated prior to the throat slash, which is also another difference between her and uh, the other victims. That was my phone flying across the room. <coughs> Sorry. Um, so, um, the uh, murder of Liz Stride is the first of what is referred to as the double event. Because um, shortly thereafter, Catherine Eddowes was murdered in Mitre Square. Um, we're going to uh, go around... Um, Starting with you, Robert, and then Mike and Allie. Um, what are your guys' opinions as of today on whether or not Elizabeth Stride was the victim of the same killer as uh, Catherine Eddowes? Well, for me, it's difficult to say. I, I mean, she's most commonly linked because uh, her killing happens at, you know, on the same night that uh, Catherine Eddowes is also found within 45 minutes of one another, which is one hell of a coincidence. Uh, but then again, uh, you know, there are differences. She's not mutilated. Uh, she's the only person uh, found south of C uh, Commercial Road. And uh, there also seems to be far more witnesses to this uh, murder than any of the other ones. It doesn't seem like uh, Jack's usual stealth murder. So there are lots of problems with her being a, a ripper victim. But having said that, uh, the evidence still has to be looked at very closely. You know, in case she is, you don't want to discount all the evidence surrounding her murder in case she is a victim. The, the thing that does it for me, um, again, I'm in two minds. Um, the things that indicate that it was for me was the wound to the throat, um, the the location uh, where she was found um, and the kind of social class that she belonged to but then on the flip side the lack of mutilations um, and also the fact that she was laid on the side and not on her back um, kind of put me in two minds as, as to maybe it was someone else that did it but then we're, we're into the whole new ball game of you know who it was and why um, so yeah I'm in two minds, really, whether it was or it wasn't a ripper victim. As for me, um, I, like I said, I don't have a firm opinion. I have a doubt as to whether she is a ripper victim or not. Um, some of my reasoning is that kind of thing I generally disdain in others, but it's just pure speculation as to how do you see that scene going and, and how do you think it would have come out, which isn't necessarily a good reason to base a, a, an opinion on, which is why I say I just have a doubt as to whether she was. Um, the lack of mutilation, um, everybody says, well, Jack was interrupted. Uh, the timing on that is sus suspect for me. I don't 
see it as being an immediate interruption. And I just, you know, as, as I said, it's one of the things I dislike when others choose it as a reason, but I sort of see it as, you know, he's a mutilating killer and he's interrupted in the middle of a kill, even in pure anger, frustration. I mean, just to get up and run, I could still see him just having that time to slam the knife into her gut if that was where his fixation was and if that was what he really wanted to do. No matter how short of time you have, there's still enough time to just do that one just angry, you know, cut and run if you wanted to. Um, and that's part of it. And then when you look at the circumstances surrounding Michael Kidney and her relationship with him, when you have, you know, a, a prior charge of assault, you have um, his, um, their on and off again type relationship, you have that sort of dynamic. Everybody knows that when a, a spouse or a, a significant other is killed, that the first person who gets looked at is, is the spouse or the significant other. And I think that there's at least a question here with the prior charge of assault, with the type of relationship that they had that opens it up to the possibility of it being a domestic murder or just, you know, of it being a murder of opportunity that happened in, in, a, in a broader swath of murders and, and that it might have been just put together as part of this whole rather than being looked at as an individual murder in and of itself. So when you say that you have to look at the evidence for including her as part and parcel of the Jack the Ripper murders, I think that we owe it to each and every one of the women also to look at it as individualized. These were each individual murders. They weren't just a series of murders. These were women who were murdered by person or persons unknown, and they also deserve to be looked at as each individual case rather than just as the Jack the Ripper case. Right. Um, I agree with that. Uh, there, there does seem to be a tendency to view Liz Stride's death as the, uh, just the precursor to Catherine Eddowes' murder. Um, and, um, and I agree wholeheartedly with what you're saying as far as uh, look, looking at each of these individual victims um, uh, as... Uh, victims in their own right as opposed to just um an asterisk next to you know the uh, another uh victim's murder um i happen to have doubts that she was the victim of the same person who killed Catherine Eddowes as well um based on um based on the, like the points that have been already raised by you guys that the the location and the the number of of people wandering around in and out of their homes, looking at the street, um, uh, it doesn't seem to match up with the. Although you know, some would say that that Edo's murder was seen by three individuals. Um, Burner Street seems to be a much more public location at the time, um, and um, and then Schwartz's. Um, Pipe man and broad-shouldered man um, seem to me. To me, it, it appears more like uh, likely that Schwartz was being chased away from the scene, um, which um, you know also happens in in. Um, this kind of scenario it also happens with victims of domestic violence is that um, is that a husband uh, will get uh, drunk 
and decide he wants to go track down his wife or girlfriend, he'll bring a buddy along. And the, the buddy is, is um, the uh, witness to um, the, the murder of the spouse or the assault of the spouse by the husband. You know what I'm saying? That kind of scenario plays itself out much more in, in cases of domestic violence than it would in um, cases of a serial killer. Um, some will dispute that. Um, those who believe that the, there's more than one individual involved in these murders, but that's just kind of how I look at it. Um, so, okay, what are some of the interesting things uh, we want to start with? Um, and I'll I'll I'll, uh, I'll say that you know here I I just said that Liz Stride's murder is often seen as an asterisk next to Catherine uh, Eddowes' murder, and and linking her um, as a victim of Jack the Ripper solely because of the murder that occurred uh, an hour or so later of Catherine Eddowes. But at the same time, Liz Stride's murder has some of the um, has some of the uh, elements that has added the myth to the Jack the Ripper case. Um, as we discussed way back when this pod show first started, that um, from Liz Stride's murder, we we get the um, image of, of, of the man carrying the black leather bag. Um, there, there's a lot of strange things that happened on this night as far as the uh, testimony of Packer and the... Um, shouting of the word Lipsky and like I mentioned broad-shouldered man, pipe man whether people were fleeing from the scene or chasing Schwartz away, that type of stuff so um, anyone is open to start um, Mike, I'll throw it to you Yeah, I just want to know what people's view on why Strad came to the UK in the first place um, do you think she came over here to, to Get away from the authorities, um, in her in her hometown, uh, or do you think she came over here for another reason? Uh, personally, I think she came over uh, for a new start. Uh, she was registered as a prostitute in in Gothenburg, but uh, when she comes to England, it seems like she gets a fresh fresh start. Uh, you know, there's there's no uh, evidence that she's prostituting herself. Uh, she's married. She's a respectable woman. She runs a coffee stall. So. I think it was a, a new way to start a new life. I mean, if she'd stayed in Sweden, I, she can't go back to domestic service after being registered as a prostitute. And I would agree. I think it's, you know, the, the typical reason for most immigrants is to leave your old life behind and start a new one somewhere else where the baggage of the past isn't going to drag you down. And I would think that that would be her primary motivation for, for going there, to leave all of those associations negative associations of, of what she was behind her. And and I would agree with that as well. And at the time, um, in the 19th century, London was the um, shining city on the hill uh, to uh, for um, people struggling in, in places in all of Europe. And... Um, and uh, she just would have been one of a flood of um, of individuals who who came to London with the uh, with the uh, idea that uh, this is the city where um, 
where uh, you know they can make a better life. Um, so now uh, some of you did before. <laughs> well, yeah the um, the brochure didn't advertise that um, there was uh, a, a huge section of London, you know that uh, you know were when people fell on hard times they ended up in the east end you know that that wasn't part of the uh the tourists uh <laughs> well i think that's so. that's just part of the overall idea of immigration i know america is seen as the immigration mecca in this century and and you know people have the idea that you know i i used to know um you know a guy who was an architect in portugal and he actually thought you know that he could come to america and make more money doing you know, basic labor, which is all he was qualified because he didn't have the architectural credentials for in America, um, and he didn't speak any English at all. And he thought that you know that coming to America would improve his life. And I, he was thinking, no, <laughs> you know that you, you've got to read the fine print, and it, you know that leaving your circumstances if you don't change yourself isn't really going to to improve your life. Right. And this. Um this this is something you know this that you know that's how usually immigration works even within the united states people who fall on hard times will think well if i just go to new york city i'll um i'll be able to make it you know it's, it's kind of a make it there if i can make it there i can make it anywhere type of mentality um that um you know usually usually doesn't work so um anyhow Stride um, seems to be one of the um, victims of the Autumn of Terror that is 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 a documented hardcore, what I would call a hardcore prostitute. There, people have um, wavered uh, back and forth on the, what 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 you know is this person just a. Uh, part-time prostitute, casual prostitutes, the word for it, or is this person um, pretty much uh, you consider making her living uh, by prostitution? What are your guys' views on that? Well, uh, rather than the word hardcore, I would I would probably use a word like full-time rather than hardcore. Um, she, well, she was no doubt, I mean, a prostitute uh in Sweden, um, she seemed to live a respectable life, but at, at some point it, it fell apart, uh, her marriage, and she resorted to prostitution like lots of other women. She just seems to have a longer track record with it. But having said that, her on-again, off-again relationship with Michael Kidney. Now, Michael Kidney did work. He was a dock laborer, and uh, you know he probably did give her uh, some money. But, you know, as, as many of the prostitutes, she had a drinking problem, and she needed to fuel that addiction. Um, but any, anybody else want to speak to that? Go ahead. Well, I find it interesting that um, here is a woman um, who we do have this this uh, pretty good documented past on on her behavior um, in and out of the courts in in uh, Sweden and in in the UK. Um, but people uh, approach her murder. 
as and and possibly you know giving try in an attempt to give credence to uh, excluding her as a victim of Jack the Ripper, making this a victim of domestic violence. That she was um, hanging out in in front of the International Working Men's Club, waiting for a date. I mean, waiting for not not a prostitution date, but you know a, a regular you know romantic. Uh, liaison with a yeah. with a boyfriend. Um, well, and and also she's uh, you know she told people that um, she did various work uh, for Jews. Uh, she told uh, Mrs. Tanner that uh, the lodging house keeper in Flower and Dean Street, and uh, y- you know the night she was murdered was a meeting night at the International Working Men's Educational Club. It, it was a meeting night. There were up to a hundred people there that night. So it's, it's, that's kind of interesting unto itself. You know, what she was actually doing in the street. You know, even, even if we discount, like, uh, Best and Gardner claiming to see her outside of, uh, you know, the bricklayer's arm at 11 p.m. that night. And, you know, I don't think that... I don't think we'll ever... Well, I mean, obviously, we'll never know. We don't have the facts at hand um, to, to determine that. But I also think it's it's largely irrelevant um, whether she was there as um, a prostitute engaged in plying her trade or waiting for a date. Um, it was obvious she was having at least a couple of dates that night um, because of, you know, the anything but your prayers, gentlemen. Then an hour later, the... Um, and, I you know, I, I don't really think that we're looking at an instance of her being seen with the same man both times in my opinion it's so i think it's it's a pretty fair assumption to say that she was probably there um looking for uh custom and uh whether that means she was jack the ripper's victim just a random um victim of a of a of another john who uh they got into an altercation or whether michael kidney tracked her down and had an argument with her and ended up killing her, I don't think, you know, I think that all of those scenarios are equally plausible, regardless of what her reasons for being there were. And, uh, you know, further to Michael Kidney, uh, Ali, uh, uh, you know, he, he claimed to, you know, to keep uh, Liz Stride, you know, true and honest, he, he claimed to have locked her in a room at times saying that she always got out but she always came back and one of the items that was found on her body uh, was a key uh, to a padlock and I was wondering what ever anyone makes of that if, if anything well to you know, me just, I just find it interesting that a man's idea of keeping a woman true and honest is locking her up that was one of the first things that said to me um Hmm. You know, if, if you look at domestic violence just as a general whole, um, there seems to be a lot of pattern to it. And part of that pattern can be seen in the Liz Stride-Michael Kidney relationship. Now, I'm not saying that Elizabeth Stride is, you know, was a sainted woman and, you know, Michael Kidney, uh, uh, you know, did her wrong. I'm just saying that uh, regardless of what, why is a man locking a fully grown woman up? Uh, why was there a charge of assault against him? Uh, why that whole repeated pattern of you try to go away, but you come back, you try to go away, you come back. All of these are, are um, indicators of a domestic violence relationship of some sort. Now, I'm not saying he ever beat her. Um, 
the assault charge may or may not have been actual, but in those kinds of relationships, if a man feels that he has the right to padlock a woman and chain her up, uh, what other rights does he think he has or what other ownership of her body does he think he has and does that extend to murder? I know if I feel like I'm perfectly comfortable chaining a man in my basement, I'm probably not going to balk at killing him at some point just because that total lack of respect for the individual and the individual's right to life and to choice is probably not there. Um, so I guess that, that whole padlocking instance was one of the first things that made me sort of go, um, that's interesting because that just shows if that's how you believe keeping, you know, you're keeping her safe, you're keeping her on the right path by chaining her up. What does that really say about your mentality? It's a good point. Go ahead, Mike. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah, I think if you're chaining her up as well, does it sound like the kind of guy that's going to be giving her money to subsidize her, her life? Um, you know, if if he's he's been on this sort of assault charge and is is you know he's claimed that he's locked her up and stuff like that, it it doesn't really sound like he's treating her uh, as well as you know he should be. Um, in in my opinion, as and when she can make money, she's going to go out and make money. Um, we saw that she was working at the the lodging houses, um, but she's done prostitution before, so what's not to stop her going back and and you know doing it again just to raise a little bit of extra cash. Perhaps he found out that she was doing it that particular night, and you know we all know where it ended. It's just a theory, but you know if 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 someone's going to chain a woman up like that, um, like like Ali said, um, what's to stop him from killing her? And I think part of the problem of seeing it as not being a Jack the Ripper is part of what was alluded to before is that if Liz Stride was not a victim of Jack the Ripper, then suddenly so much of the mythology of Jack the Ripper goes out the window. And I really believe that people um, don't want to look at Liz Stride as not being Jack the Ripper's because then it guts the myth a little bit. It takes away so much of the and I hesitate to use this, but it really is, you know, the coolness factor of Jack the Ripper. Oh, he killed two people in one night. He did the double events. How cool is that? Um, that whole kind of larger-than-life, swirly, black-coated figure, even if you don't really believe that, you know, Jack the Ripper wore a black coat and walked around Whitechapel, it's that myth of Jack the Ripper that would get seriously beaten if we actually took the stride off the table. Right, and and um, another thing is that um, it it uh, opens up, you know, um, the reality uh, that I don't know that a lot of people to this day really want to recognize, and that is that um, women uh, can simply have be thrown down on the ground and have their throats cut by their husbands. And and, um, and and you know people say that oh well if, if a woman was attacked on the street with a knife and her throat was cut then then it must be the murder of Jack the Ripper because no one that sick because he, he was the only you know the only one roaming around the streets of the East End that would that was 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 that bloodthirsty well the fact of the matter is is that women in the East End were getting beaten and killed by their husbands all the time and and um, so it, so not only does it take away the the stealth mystique of Jack the Ripper being able to pull off two murders in one night, but it also kind of opens uh, a window uh, 
to uh, that an unpleasant window that, um, well, you know, uh, Liz Stride was just murdered by, um, you know, a man who says he loved her. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, and, and it's not even that the domestic violence of the time was limited to the East End. We're talking right. about a time when women had no political rights. They had no, um, you know, they were property for the most part. And how far did your property mindset extend? Um, domestic violence up until several you know, just a few decades ago, wasn't viewed as a serious issue, or it was viewed as a family issue more than being a legal issue. And if you have that mindset of, you know, this is my wife, this is my property, um, I, I throw away my property all the time and think nothing of it. And I'm not saying that, you know, all men in Victorian London or America or at that time period viewed their wives or women that way, but we have men today who view their spouses like that so it would be ludicrous to say that that just would not have happened or that wouldn't have occurred to someone back then when women had far less respect than they do now and it's still an uphill battle i mean there's currently you know the case on the message boards where people are arguing that women who are soldiers you know sh there's no sympathy for them if they're raped because they chose to go into a male-dominated field so to say that you know the whole uh, how women are viewed didn't play a part in in part of this is you know I think would just be oversimplifying it. Right, and it is well documented in the um, in the press and in police reports of cases of um, husbands attacking their wives on the street. Um, at this time, um, it, it, basically, all a man had to do to uh, keep other people from intervening in, in his uh, domestic dispute was to announce to, to the bystanders that this is my wife. And, 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 and there was this mentality, it was so pervasive um, at the time, so, uh, because Ali's exactly right, that if as long as it's a man abusing his wife, then, then it's none of my business. And it, it, well, just keep on walking. Well, that's you're describing Schwartz uh, exactly. Like when he walks down Burner Street at 12:45 and sees a woman being thrown to the pavement and an assault taking place, you know he's assuming it's a domestic yeah. uh, issue, and you know he's not thinking there's a murder happening or anything. It's just one of those domestic issues that he probably saw walking home, you know, quite frequently, which is why he just moved on and wanted to mind his own business. And I think that that's something that's 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 hard for us to understand. I know I don't understand it in this day and age that at the very least now you don't see that sort of blatant assault occurring um, because the wider population recognizes that women have rights not to be abused or chained up at your husband's whim and that just didn't occur back then. So um, just... You know, I just, I find it interesting that, that it's just automatically dismissed that Kidney could have had anything to do with it. And I just, I've always found that attitude sort of puzzling. Like, there's not even a question. And I think out of all of them, uh, Liz Stride is the one that, that there has to be the absolute most question about. Because it is the one where there's just so many additional parameters to her killing 
not even getting into the lack of mutilation, but just so, you know, actual suspects, um, actual, uh, the surrounding to it that, that makes it just a question mark. Right. And um, we don't have another person on the show that would argue against. This is kind of a one-sided discussion because we all seem to be in agreement here. Um, but before this becomes a Michael Kidney suspect show, um, we want to ba- uh, we want to um, bag on his character a little more because he um, said his his um, attitude towards the police um, after the murder. And his behavior at the inquest has raised a few eyebrows. Um, I don't have specifically what was said in front of me. Maybe well, Robert can uh, add a little bit of that on what... Sure. What, well, what, when he was talking to, to Baxter, he said that when he first contacted the police, you know, just give me a policeman and I'll go out and I'll find her murderer. And, you know, I have information that is useful. And then Baxter prodded him, of course, for that information. And not only that, but in Inspector Reed stood up and asked him that if you have information, turn it over now. And he just played this uh, word game back and forth. And so, you, you know, uh, in, until Baxter finally said, well, you know, I, I've got a hundred people telling me the same thing, which elicited laughter, you know, uh, uh, you know amongst the pe- uh, people who were gathered uh, to watch. So, uh, you know, Kidney, I don't think, was any different in that respect, saying that he had information. It's just that he did it in a public forum like the inquest. And... Uh, you know, I don't think he had anything. Like, you, you know, if in, you know if somebody else committed the murder, he had nothing. Uh, you know, if if he did it, he can say anything he wants. Right, and it does. Um, this this murder has a lot of uh, of the same qualities as the O.J. Simpson murder, and and that um, there's evidence of the crime scene that maybe more than one person was involved. Um, the behavior of the spouse in claiming that they can catch the real killer, um, just the pattern of the domestic violence, there have been documented domestic violence, the stride continues to go back to kidney and then leaves again and back and forth and back and forth. Um, given all of this, uh, what seems obvious to us um, 20th century folks about the nature of domestic violence do you guys think that it was because of this ignorance, that, that this pervasive ignorance in that society that led um, to Stride's inclusion in the C5, that led the high-ranking police officials to believe that she was a ripper murderer as opposed to a domestic murder? I mean, why, given all of this stuff that points at, towards kidney, or at least puts doubts on this, why do you guys believe... Um, the, the high-ranking police officials at the time considered her a victim of, of the same murder as Nichols, Chapman, Addos, and Kelly? Well, uh, first and foremost, uh, murdered out in the street is something that was extremely uncommon in the East End, and indeed anywhere in London. Uh, domestic murders happened behind closed doors for the most part. Uh, this was also a very brazen murder, uh, it happened in a very dark spot, you know, in, in, inside the Duffield's yard. And on a meeting night, when uh, the socialists and the anarchists were getting together and having a meeting. And once again, that, that the, those are very typical of Jack the Ripper. And, you know, of course, coupled within 45 minutes, you know, of the Edo's murder, 
uh, you know, people just don't want to believe in that type of coincidence. High-ranking officials, and, he, and even a lot of people in today have trouble swallowing that. And, you know, and I agree with everything that was just stated, and um, I don't, you know, I, I would never, you can't look back into the minds of someone who, of today that, that that's investigating something much less 100 years ago, and I'm sure they had good reason. Um, I, don't, I don't think they just got caught up in the hysteria. Uh, they were investigators. Um, the, the facts already mentioned that it was a public murder out in the street. Um, if those who did believe, I don't think necessarily that everybody did believe that Stride was um, a murder. You know, I know everybody always points to the higher-ups. Well, you know, I hate to be the one to say this, but generally the higher-ups are the ones who least know what's going on on the ground. Um, they tend to get everything filtered. They tend to get everything um, uh, one step removed. And, and who's to know, say the actual men on the street, the ones who walk the streets every day, who's to know what they actually thought about Liz Stride's murder or any of the murders? Um, so when we point to the higher ups and, and the and the big the big guns, shall we say, um, you know. The, the ones who are in the ivory tower or, you know, just the, 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 the center of command don't necessarily have all the information because they can't have all the information. The, the murders weren't the only one, weren't the only crimes happening um, in, the, in the city at the time. And yes, they were the priority, absolutely. Um, but there was still other things going on that, you know, you'll have to direct your attention to just in the course of, you know, daily events. Um, and again, Here's the bottom line. Cops get it wrong. Uh, they do get it wrong. and But one thing we, we do know that would have happened is Michael Kidney would have been carefully investigated. Just like O.J. Uh, Simpson? Yeah, but there was no... Yeah, <laughs> but that's that's a bit different. But, uh, but Kidney would have been at least carefully considered. Uh, you know, they would have tracked his movements. They would have found out where he was, what he was doing. Um, you know, not to say that completely absolves him, but uh, there's there's no question they, they would have looked at him. They, they, they would not have ignored him as a suspect. I'm in two minds, actually. Um, basically, I think that at the, during the, the time, um, the police officials possibly had more information than what we have now. Um, therefore, that they could they could state that it was um, a ripper crime. We already know that several papers have vanished and gone missing over the years. But then, on the flip side of it, um, they didn't have everything that we have now. Um, you know, we can look back on the bigger picture. Um, and at the time, I don't think they would have had that. Um, you know, you know, so they might not um, have been able to state whether or not it was a domestic. Um, so that's got me in two minds whether whether or not you know the reason why they thought it was a ripper crime or or why they couldn't rule it out. Right, and um, just to, uh, back to that O.J. Simpson analogy, uh, there is um, good. I mean, there's there's a great possibility that if uh, if Kidney was uh, prosecuted for the murder of Liz Stride, he would have been acquitted for lack of evidence. Um, so, you know. Uh, I, I'd say that O.J. Simpson was uh, in, investigated um, and 
uh, maybe a lot stronger than Michael Kidney was and, and as, as far as that murder concerned because he ended up being prosecuted for it. Um, but the outcomes probably would have been similar. Um, let's right, and I, and I think that we shouldn't also underestimate the fact that, you know, police are human and they're as prone to getting swept up in the hysteria as anybody else. And when you have, within the next day, everybody's trumpeting the double event, the double event, and, you know... Right. Not you know, uh, you know, who's to say that just public opinion doesn't overwhelmingly and those ones who have that small niggle of doubt, you know, I'm sure Kidney was investigated and I know that people point to that and they say, well, he was questioned and he, the police didn't consider him a viable suspect. But we don't, again, we don't know what the police truly thought. We know he wasn't arrested or tried for her murder, but not saying that the police questioned him and didn't arrest him or try him for the murder is a very different thing of saying, well, the police questioned him and cleared him and just thought that, okay, you know, we don't think he did it. They may very well just said, well, maybe he did it, but we don't have enough evidence to go forward with this. And when Frances Coles was murdered in 1891, they took a close look at her boyfriend, uh, Thomas Sadler, and they had uh, grave suspicions that he'd murdered her. Um, but that doesn't seem to, you know, that didn't seem to happen earlier with Kidney. Which is probably a fairer analogy than, than O.J. Simpson, like using a, a more contemporary analogy. Right. Uh, with with yeah. Sadler and Foles. Right. Um, okay, let's uh, switch gears a little bit and, and, and um, say that, um, I'll, I'll start this off just by saying that some of the suspect theories... Um, that involved the murder of Liz Stride also throw in um, it being a pipe man, broad-shouldered man, um, somehow working in tandem. Um, there's the Russo theory uh, that involves Sickert and J.K. Stephen, uh, people who support Tumblety as having, maybe not being the murderer himself, but having a good deal of involvement in it um with the uh organ collection theory would say would think that maybe tumble tea in tandem with someone else was responsible for the murder of this tried um if this was a ripper killing do you guys believe that it that the pipe man broad-shouldered man um would point towards two killers or um or do you think that it it would have just um, been Pipe Man running away from the crime, just like um, Schwartz was running away from the crime. Uh, personally, my feeling is that uh, you know, if if we somehow include Pipe Man in the scenario, then we do get into all kinds of strange theories. And and everyone who has more than one killer is a theory that has a a duo or a trio or more always has to include the stride murder and very complicated scenarios. Uh, when in fact, you know, from my mind, uh, you, you know, here, here is the guy with the pipe uh, emerging from the Nelson pub, it appears. Uh, you know, even though the pub is closed at the time. But, it, but he's somehow in the street. Yeah, he could very easily just be like uh, Schwartz was in, in the fact that he was just leaving the scene. Like it was a domestic. He didn't want to become involved either. 
you know, this guy obviously said something, you know, whether it was Lipsky or something else to Schwartz who didn't speak English, but I probably understand that understood that word, unless it was something else, as, as other people have, have said, he could have been yelling Lizzie to him and not Lipsky, he could have used other words, uh, but, but, you know, there's a, there's a large absence of evidence here, you know, to connect Pipe Man uh, to the guy who was assaulting uh, the woman who Schwartz later identified as Stride, uh, you know, and there's, there's also no evidence that he was... Uh, uh, chasing Schwartz. Schwartz did not run away from the crime. He walked away quickly. And, you know, and the pipe man never caught up with him. He never threatened him. He never spoke to him. You know, it it, it, it makes me think that uh, he was just leaving as well, you know, going on his way. Anyone else? I have to agree with Robert. If I, I think he was just running away as well. And, you know, the safety in numbers, um, if something's going on like that. And as well, uh, you know, Pipe Man could have turned around and said, you know, well, it wasn't me because I was running away and this guy saw me running away. Um, but we know he never came forward, uh, which adds to the to the mystery. Um, but I just think he was he got caught up in the moment and, and he was running away from it as well. Right, because it was Broad Shoulders who said Lipsky. Um, for our, our listeners who are not as familiar with this case as we are, uh, we should probably just point out that Broad Shoulders was a man who attacked Liz in the passageway. Pipe Man was the one who came out onto the, the um, sidewalk. Uh, and um, Broad Shoulders yelled Lipsky, which uh, Schwartz did not comprehend what that meant. Um, so there, there, there is a good possibility that Pipe Man was... Uh, Jewish from the neighborhood and maybe knew what that meant and that gave him enough reason to, to um, turn tail um, the, only problem with that, the only problem with that scenario though is Pipe Man is, is uh, you, you know claims to have a fair complexion you know, he's tall fair complexion and by what Stride says he, he doesn't sound Semitic that you know it, it's very easy uh, to see the lips by what Schwartz like. says right yeah by what, but also the other thing that that I don't know why I don't think I've ever seen this question, but to me this was always just something that stuck in my mind. Um, you're a Jack the Ripper duo. You're engaged in the process of killing a hooker in out in the middle of nowhere, and you stop to light a pipe. Why? Well, I mean that 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 was the thing. Well, like he's a serial killers he, are you know. He, he stopped. But, but, he's lighting a pipe. So, not only to yeah, and then not only to light a pipe, Ali, but to show himself. Yeah, like, to actually exactly. Come out of because because uh, Schwartz did not see him until he actually emerges. So right, right, and 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 you know, and when you, I mean, anybody who knows you light the pipe, it's going to light up your facial expression. It's going to light up your features when you when you when you do that initial thing. But um, I just, you know, I don't really see that as being something logical to be doing in the heat of committing a murder. And also, if, if, if like, it's been mentioned that he was a lookout, but if, if he was a lookout, he is in the worst spot to be a lookout because he's not on a corner, like, like let's say, of Faircloth and Burner Street looking out. He's actually in Burner Street, which, so if, if he's a lookout um, for the broad-shouldered man assaulting Stride, then he's absolutely in the wrong spot, and he's a very poor lookout, because you know, uh, 
Schwartz he's drawing attention to himself? He's drawing attention to himself, and Schwartz is on, already on top of the scene, you know, before anything happens, right? Before he could even alert uh, the broad-shouldered man. So I don't buy the lookout theory as well. I don't either. And there's some speculation as to whether or not broad-shouldered man and or pipe man were uh, were identified by the police um, and cleared at some point. Right. Well, we know doesn't, they doesn't. They did, they I think did, Paul Begg may may speculate on that. Right, and we know they did a massive sweep of the area, though, following the Stride murder. Like they did home to home search in Burner Street and the surrounding area that the police did. They were very, very thorough after that murder, because of course by this time they had, you know, a, a long string of unsolved murders. You know, uh, going back to Emma Smith, you know, Tabram through Nichols Chapman, and then on that night you have Stride and Eddowes, so uh, it definitely in- increased their home-to-home searches, and, and they became right. a bit more thorough at that time. And that would let uh, lead to what Mike uh, said earlier, which is that, uh, well, they had more evidence that we haven't seen um, at the time. It could very well include the elimination of, of um, Pipe Man and, or Broad Man having anything to do with the crime. Um, and then you get into this scenario where this woman was attacked in the same spot um, by two different men um, within moments of each other. And, and which uh, people buy into that to a certain degree of, of that possibility. What do you guys think of that? The likely, I, I mean, it, what was broad? It, do we all, are we all consensus that broad shouldered man is the murderer of Liz Stride or? Could could Jack have snuck in, um, in between, and and um, and finished her off? I think it's, to it's, quote the Razor Principle: the simplest is always the best. Right. And basically, the people who want to believe, well, broad-shouldered man motive of attack doesn't fit Jack the Ripper, so therefore. Liz Stride was attacked by two completely separate individuals after she got away from Broad Shoulder Man. She was killed by Jack the Ripper. They're just stretching credibility beyond what I think it was meant to be stretched. And if you go just by the simplest is the best fit, Broad Shoulder Man killed Liz Stride and probably was not Jack the Ripper. I, I agree. And, and also, you know, if, if Stride is assaulted in the street, you know, as as Schwartz says, if it happened that way, um, I have a feeling that she would leave the area as well. You know, maybe not go far, but maybe up to Commercial Road or something, but, but she would also just leave from the exact... You know, she's murdered 10 yards away 15 minutes later. It, it just doesn't make any sense. Or maybe a few minutes later, because, you know, after Schwartz sees her, she could have been murdered any time, you know, between the time Schwartz sees her and by the time uh, Dean shuts brings his pony and, and trap into the yard. Right, and how so, many minutes so transpired there is, how many minutes transpired between those two? That's approximately fifteen minutes. Um, if if you squeeze it down it, it's it's at least ten. Right. And how uh, long did it take uh, Jack the Ripper to do what he did to Catherine Eddowes? Well see that's the thing. It only took a few minutes to do that because uh, you know Lavender Levy and Harris, you know, see her at approximately twelve thirty four. They've got a pretty good uh, a time on that, you know, outside the passageway, which means Jack would have had to walk Eddowes down the passageway into Mitre Square, um, 
then do a blitz attack, and where he, you know, of course he uh, removes her intestines, puts them on her shoulder, uh, removes the kidney, has time to nick her eyelids, nick her cheeks. Uh, he does a lot of work in in what uh, Doctor Sequeira said was probably five minutes or less, which also lends to the what Ali said earlier about uh, she doesn't buy the necessarily buy the fact that. Jack wasn't interrupted if it was Jack who uh, murdered uh, Stride. Right. Because, because we know from Eddowes, and we also can assume from Chapman, that he was used to working very, very quickly. So, you know, he could have done some mutilation. Um, maybe not have time to uh, harvest an organ, but, you know, he could have had time to, you know, slitter up the middle or, or do something, uh, you know, before he had to flee. So the interruption theory for me is also a problem. Right. Because he de- because he does have a window there. Right, and then and if you throw in like Tabram and Nichols, um, and the nature of some of their injuries, um, they uh, it seems like he was uh, uh, content um, to add just uh, stab wounds um, to the private area, and um, he could have easily gotten a few of those in. Um, and, in uh, seconds, in in bare yeah. seconds, that's all it would have taken. Right. Um. So if he was interrupted, then he wasn't Jack. Uh, you. That would be an assumption that would would be one one step too far for me. I mean, he could still be interrupted, as far as I'm concerned, and and be Jack. Uh, because the Nichols murder has always bothered me in in some respects that way is that she was uh, mutilated, but no organs were taken. And, and the mutilations, compared to the later ones, uh, you know, are nowhere near as severe. Uh, and I, I wonder if he got skittish, if, if something scared him off. And and it was busy at, at that field's yard in Burner Street that night, and I'm just wondering if it wasn't so you, that, it, like, You don't buy the escalation? That. Sorry, you don't Me? buy the escalation theory? No, no, I'm, I don't. I don't buy the escalation theory, actually. Because, because uh, I mean, I'm sorry. I'm just when, uh, that sort of struck me when you were saying Nichols. Yeah. She was the first and the considered of the pattern. So I was okay. So I just wanted to clarify that that you're not with the escalation theory. Okay. No, because I'm I'm one of those people that thinks because he is murdering, you know, with the exception of Kelly, all of these women outdoors, that there are so many variables to consider, uh, you know, for him, you know. Uh, there's not only, you know, time, you know, there's the location, like, like who's around, can anyone see him, does anyone see him, and, uh, you know, at, at some point, he, he seems to want darkness and privacy, or, yet all, all the murders, you know, seem, seem different, you know, there's differences, like, if, if you go to all throughout it, but I'm not, no, I don't believe in the escalation theory, personally. But that's a little off topic. Yeah. Yeah, I just I had to clarify yeah. that because I got confused by the nickels. Yeah, I only brought that up because she could have been mutilated much worse because there are no witnesses. I mean, after Emily Holland sees her, you know, more than an hour before her death until she's discovered by Charles Cross. I mean, nobody, nobody sees nickels at all. So it's the most private of the murders. We're now going to have to do a who do you think was a victim of the same killer show? <laughs> well, I... Sorry. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to do that. Um, 
and 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 we and of course we'd have to that that'd be one of Robert's shows that he recommended uh, a while a few days ago. We'll go through all of the non-C5, the C5, and then the post-C5, whatever you want to call it, and 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 um, get everyone's take on who's who seems a victim and who doesn't. Um, Nichols is the extent of back just briefly on Nichols. The extent of her injuries, I think, are downplayed a lot in this case. Um, she did have um, some of her organs protruding out of her body. I mean, I think there could have been an effort made um, to do a, a, an Eddowes on Nichols. So I, I am in agreement with Robert that I don't think it's a psychological escalation of violence in the mind of the killer as much as uh, he gets as much done as he has the opportunity to get done before he gets skittish. Um, and takes off, yeah. And and one of the problems the police had at the time, and that we still have today, with the Stride murder, you know, in, in determining who actually did it, is the fact that the eyewitness testimony all seems to contradict each other. Um, the men described by, uh, by Brown, uh, by P.C. Smith, by Schwartz, by Matthew Packer, are all different. And... You know, who are you looking for? Are you looking for a man who's 28? Is he 35? Um, does he have facial hair? Does he have a mustache? Does he not have a mustache? What kind of coat is he wearing? I mean, none of them really match, which is why I think they liked Schwartz as sort of a um, their witness, because Packer changed his statement so many times that he wasn't credible. Um, the PC Smith came through Burner Street, and he had no reason to really take notice of the couple that closely because they weren't really doing anything. You know, they weren't drunk, they weren't quarreling. And um, same with Brown when he's, when he's coming back from the Chandler shop in, in uh, Faircloth Street. Uh, he just seems to walk by a couple, so he's not really even paying attention. But Schwartz actually seems to witness something. And, and I think what makes Schwartz more credible than the others is the fact that when he talks to... Well, when you get a statement secondhand through Swanson, of course, because his original doesn't exist, or when you get it through the star the following day, um, Schwartz is not playing the hero. He's not saying, I did this, I did that. He's actually looks like a coward. And, you know, you know if you're one of those people that uh, is making up a story, you're not going to portray yourself as a coward in that story. And so that's why one of the reasons why I find Schwartz more credible than the other witnesses in the case, and the police probably did as well. But as I said, they have a problem with the, the testimony of, of all of the witnesses in the Stride case. And they don't well, get that in the other case because there aren't as many witnesses. But Allie? The problem is, though, is I have a problem with eyewitness testimony, period. And I don't ever... I basically ignore all the witness testimony because, I'm sorry, but just circumstance after circumstance and study after study and case after case has proved that eyewitness testimony is completely unreliable. I think there's actually um, cases pending in, in several courts that were, you know, people convicted based on eyewitness testimony where, you know, DNA, you know, and they were 100% positive that they had the man, but DNA tests have ruled it out. And there's actually, you know, those, the, the studies that we're all familiar with now where they'll set up a situation, a crime, and then they'll pull, you know, the sampling of the people who witnessed it to see what do they have. And it's just notorious that when something happens, when you're shocked, when your emotions engage in a quick 
second in a dark setting in you know poor lighting um you don't see what you think you see and you know eyewitness testimony is is just completely unreliable so for the vast so i I just i discount it yeah i agree with you completely on that ali like you always have to take that with a grain of salt and uh for those who actually want to learn more about eyewitness testimony uh, there's a lady named Professor Elizabeth Loftus. Um, she's written several books. She's a professor um, that uh, teaches about memory and eyewitness testimony and the problems with it. It, it makes for very enlightening reading and, and, and transfers not only to the Whitechapel murders, but um, to any murders in general where eyewitness testimony is about all you have. Um, I want to uh, talk a little bit about Mary Malcolm and um, her testimony at the inquest. Um, she she uh, claimed, and she well, she 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 went to view the body twice. Uh, she went um, the night after the murder, but and it was too dark for her to give a positive. Well, okay, uh, let me just backtrack for those who don't know. She read about the murder of Elizabeth Stride. At this time, she was unidentified. Um, Mary Malcolm read about the murder in the newspaper and believed that it was her sister, Elizabeth Watts. And she went down that evening to attempt to identify the body. She was unable to do so because of the dark. She went back the next morning, positively identified um, the body in the mortuary as being that of Elizabeth Watts, um, nicknamed Long Liz, someone who threw fake epileptic fits, and um, and who had been borrowing money from Mary Malcolm off and on um, for quite a while. Um, and she was 100% certain. And then, um, and then she testified at the inquest that um, it was her sister, Elizabeth Watts. And then lo and behold, Elizabeth Watts is found alive and well. And um, Elizabeth Stride, that which of course the victim was subsequently identified, also known as Long Liz. Um, one of her nicknames was Epileptic Annie. We're not sure why. Um, well, this whole scenario has uh, bec- led uh, people to speculate that maybe Elizabeth Stride was masquerading as. Mary Malcolm's sister in order to extort money from her. Um, what are your guys' uh, opinions on, on that whole thing? It was uh, Elizabeth Stride's murder is just full of these really odd occurrences. Well, for me, uh, that's, yeah, that's Elizabeth Stride. Yeah, for me, Elizabeth Stride and Elizabeth Watts never knew each other, and um, and and of course, uh, Mary Malcolm was cautioned at the inquest by the time because by the time they got to the inquest. Uh, Elizabeth Stride had positively been identified, including by her nephew, who was a, a police constable, uh, Walter Stride, uh, who recognized her as being the man that married her uncle in uh, around about 1869. But uh, Mary Malcolm strikes me as one of those people that's similar to Caroline Maxwell. In in the, she may be perfectly sincere, uh, or she may be seeking attention. I don't know, but she's like. Uh, uh, she's like Carolyn Maxwell in, in the Mary Kelly murder. 
uh, where, you know, as we know, Carolyn Maxwell said that she saw uh, uh, Mary Kelly the morning of November 9th uh, after she was presumed dead by everybody, and uh, nobody else has a, a good explanation other than she was mistaken, and, and uh, Carolyn Maxwell was also cautioned, you know, by... Uh, by Roderick at the, at the at the Kelly inquest, and uh, you know, for me, Mary Malcolm is is uh, similar in, in that vein. But if if anyone else has any ideas, chime in. Well, I just want um, you just think she was um, on honestly mistaken. No, no. well, I I think she could have been honestly mistaken, like Carolyn Maxwell, right. or she could have uh, you know wanted to be part of this. Um, knowing that she was wrong, maybe she had a vendetta against her sister or something, because she claimed she hadn't spoken with her sister in a while. So, right, her and her sister didn't didn't seem to be on the best of terms. And there are just a lot of coincidences in that um, they shared the same nickname, maybe even two nicknames. If you want to throw in the epileptic fit uh, uh, scenario with epileptic Annie and and um, Elizabeth Watt, it's throwing fake epileptic fits. They both ran coffee stalls, uh, or at least Mary Malcolm identified her sister as having ran a coffee stall. Elizabeth Stride ran a coffee stall. So there does seem to be a lot of these. Um Although those type of coincidences seem to run through the case, because, you know, as we've seen, uh, so many of the victims, you know, went by the name of Kelly, or there seems to be a Kelly involved. Right. Like not only Mary Kelly, right, but... so. So, uh, you know, we see these threads, I think, uh, going through the case. If you look really hard, uh, you will find these things. If you look at enough people, enough evidence, enough of a person's background, uh, certain scenarios are, are going to turn out. Anyone else have an opinion on whether or not um, Elizabeth Stride could have been masquerading as Mary Malcolm's sister? I think I it's... Go on, Ali. No, go, go ahead, Mike. I think it's... Uh, a coincidence and B um, if she's involved in the case it's going to be a free beer um, a free drink for her tonight um, sort of thing um, you know a story that she can tell people at the pub um, we've seen it before um, but that you know that um, one or two for me it's a coincidence or she was just trying to inject herself into the case I'm not a fan of any of the was person A masquerading as person B theories. There's actually uh, an, a one in Ripperologist where someone is positing that Joe Fleming, uh, Mary Jane Kelly's uh, beau, was actually George Hutchinson. Right. And was masquerading as him. And, you know, I always have to just say, okay, why? You know, and I, and I realize I have way too logical of a mind, and I'm always looking at the, well, why would somebody do that sort of thing? And, and sometimes it's just like, if you're going to do a masquerade, why would Liz Stride masquerade as someone who actually exists? Why would she masquerade as, you know, Mary Malcolm's sister? What would that get her? Right. If she if she wanted to take on a new identity, if she wanted to, uh, you know, she'd already changed her life by moving to England. If she wanted to start all over again, why take the identity of somebody who's, you know, it's it's not like you know we need she needed her social security number. So why would you know why would she do that? That would just be my question, which is why I would have to come down on the side of no, she wasn't. Yeah. Well, I think the the Hutchison. Um Fleming, the thing has more to do with the, that uh, 
there, no, that George Hutchinson isn't traceable throughout history. He seems to vanish from right. the face of the earth. But then Joe Fleming has this uh, has this rather sordid uh, history. Uh, well, living in Victoria home, but then later being committed to a mental institution. So that leads people to believe that maybe they were one and the same. But that's a, another another tangent. show. Another show, hopefully. Well, you know. I'm full of the tangents today, aren't I? (laughs) Sorry about that. (laughs) My train of thought derailed. Um, And ultimately, it's... uh, Although I brought it up, I'll just go ahead and say, ultimately, it's it's meaningless. Because it it assuredly has nothing to do with uh, the motivation behind her murder. Um, It's just one of those personality... Yeah, court getting getting trying to get at the victim's personality and stuff that really isn't related to solving the crime. Um, but um, anyhow, um, what else do we want to talk about here today? Anyone else have anything? Robert, you you bring up something. Uh, we, putting well, you on the spot. Well, we could talk about a lot of things. Uh, but I'm sure that would go on for half an hour. Like, if, if we get into something like the testimony of Matthew Packer, or if we get into, like, the blood on the, the back of uh, Elizabeth Stride's hand, how did it get there? Because right. it wasn't right. wasn't an injury. I mean, uh, you know, there's things like this, or uh, Bachelor and Grand, like, these two self-ascribed uh, or self-described uh, private detectives and how they got themselves involved in the case. I mean... These things, I, th- I think, uh, for the moment, are, b- are best left uh, to the magazines. People can look back through the magazines and, and see articles by uh, Tom Westcott and Ripper Notes, or, you know, they can go to Ripperologist number 52 if they want to see the background of Elizabeth Stride in an article by uh, Daniel Olson. I-, I think those cover, like, the real fine details much better than, than I think we can go into here. Right, and, um, and there are... The- yeah, this this murder is is uh, discussed quite a bit on the message boards. Also, I mean, we there there. Um, I don't know if any of these threads still exist, but you know, there's uh, people positing the notion that maybe she have, would have slipped and fallen and cut her throat on, on some kind of um, horse horseshoe cleaner, some kind of shovel implement, a scraper that's sticking out of the ground or something like that. There's um, yeah, like uh, you had said, debate on whether. She had uh, blood on her. Uh, well, how it got there, yeah. How it got there, how her hands were positioned at the time of death. I mean, it's it's gone um, over and over in a lot a lot of detail. Um, so, uh, if anyone has any, uh, and and as Mike said here to me in private, we did cover a lot of the myths uh, concerning the Stride case on our show uh, Sour Grapes that had with Dan Norder as far as uh, the man with the black Gladstone bag whether or not she was clutching grapes in her hand when she was killed and so if anyone wants to go back and listen to some of that stuff on the Myth Show um, it was an earlier episode way back there um, so any um, anyone have any parting comments on Elizabeth Stride before we wrap it up we are over an hour. You good? Everyone good? Yeah, I'm good. Okie dokie. 
You've been listening to Rippercast. This was episode 16, Anything Brought Your Prayers, The Murder of Elizabeth Stride. Joining me today from Virginia in the United States was Allie Ryder. Robert McLaughlin was in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And Mike Covell is in Hull. We are a weekly podcast on the Whitechapel murders, available for download at the iTunes Music Store, Society and Culture podcast section under History. You can also subscribe to our show via our website, www.rippernet.com. And we thank everyone for listening. All comments or questions on today's show can be emailed to rippernet at mac.com. And we'll be back next Sunday. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Like